introduce uh, our, our panel. We have a, an, a fifth one, uh, Di, who is the... I don't know why they're sitting apart, because Craig's the, the illustrator and Di is the, <laughs> is the words of Windcatcher. Well, there's so, method in our madness. Yes, yeah, so, so they're, they're well separated. <laughs> and um, they'll be talking about uh, that book, which is being launched at the Pavilion uh, at 5 o'clock. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's all about the mutton birds of Port Ferry and wonderful words and wonderful illustrations by Craig. So, uh, And um, Stephen Whiteside is here. He's written quite a, a few things for children and... Uh, and I'm here as the person who put this book together several years ago now called The Big Book of uh, uh, Verse for Aussie Kids. So um, I just, I, I'm just going to say two things about... I have written quite a few things for kids, but I, I don't see myself necessarily as a, as a writer for children, uh, which Di and, and Stephen have much for uh, authority in that area. But uh, when I was putting this book together... Um, I thought there were two things that I loved as a kid when I, you know, came to verse. And they were a sense of wonder and words. Um, so I was, as, as a kid, I found Spike Milligan excruciatingly funny and I, was, I managed uh, to get a lot of his verse in here. You know, thing on the ning-dang-dong with the cows go bong and the monkeys all say boo. There's an ong-dang-ding with the trees go ping and the teapots jibber jabber jew And just words. Kids love words so they don't even have to make sense. So um, I love playing with words as a kid. The other thing that I particularly loved was the sense of wonder that I experienced as a child reading certain poems, um, and they weren't necessarily Australian. Rudyard Kipling, who's very politically incorrect these days, but um, several of his poems, which I did put in here, I just found it was my first experience of wonder as a child. You know, and I'm going to read a couple of those to you uh, later on. And a poem which you may be familiar with um, by Alfred Noyes, The Highwayman, which I experienced as about a nine or ten-year-old. And I was... I was transported to another world, the world of, of wonder and fancy and, and history. You know, it's a highwayman and he, it's all very dramatic and, and so on. Um, and reading it today, it's, it's still, it still works for me. So um, that's for me, writing for kids, words and wonder. Um, but I'm now going to hand over to Stephen, who unfortunately has to leave us early to uh, for another commitment, a very important one. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'll now hand the microphone to Stephen Whiteside. Thank you, Jim. Thanks very much. And uh, it's a great thrill to be here. I haven't been in this bookshop before, so it's quite an eye-opener to see what a wonderful space it is. Uh, such precious uh, resources, aren't they, bookshops? They look like they were going under for a while, but it's quite clear that they're not and uh, uh, they need all the support and encouragement we can give them. Look, uh, I'm not quite sure what the audience is. I'm just looking around. I came here with the, with the idea of talking a bit about my uh, journey to have this book published, which was my the, the, the achievements as a children's writer that I'm most proud of. And it, I think it's, it is quite an interesting story. And when I was starting out writing myself, I was keen to hear writers' stories, how they got going, how they got their foot in the door, what worked and what didn't. 
uh, just look, just sort of hungry for any tips I could pick up. Uh, I mean, are there people out there who are aspiring children or successful children's writers who'd be interested in? Okay, okay. Um, oh, c- a couple. That's good. And um, and the other thing, I sort of feel I, I, I don't want to leave because I'm not going to be able to take questions when I finish because um, I've got to leave. And if anybody has a burning question right now they'd like to ask, I'd be happy to try to answer it. But my my um, I've come to children's writing uh, <coughs> in a very specific way, really, and that's through rhyming verse because I grew up with. Um, uh, my father reading Banjo Patterson to me and, and Henry Lawson as well. And the, the poems that I loved were Mulga Bill's Bicycle, um, the G-Bung Polo Club, The Man from Ironbark, these sorts of things. And I loved Lawson and I got a bit involved. Uh, later on in life I learned more about C.J. Dennis and I loved uh, uh, his work too. And he had a book uh, published in 1921. The centenary of that will be celebrated next year uh, called A Book for Kids. And I remember looking at that book and it, it was like it almost sort of like it sort of shone so brightly at me, I couldn't believe such an extraordinary, fantastic book actually existed. I could barely bring myself to open the covers and look at the pages inside. It just seemed sort of too good to believe. And when I was 21, I started writing uh, rhyming verse in the sort of Banjo-Patterson style, I suppose. And, you know, it, it was pretty dreadful, as it always is when you start out. And I didn't really know who I was writing to, and I did some performing, and it wasn't kind of... Um, I wasn't good enough to be a great success, but I, unfortunately I wasn't bad enough to be a complete failure. So I was kind of somewhere in the middle, you know, and I sort of bumbled along for a while like that, not quite knowing who I was writing for and feeling I was probably only writing for myself <coughs> and didn't really have an audience. Um, I've since found that my most of my writing for adult sort of appeals to women and children but not so much to men which is quite an interesting thing in its own right <coughs> but anyway I kind of uh, sort of uh, continued in this vein for a while and I had in the back of my mind that one day I'd write for kids but I also had this strong feeling that for one reason or another I needed to be sufficiently removed from my own childhood to do that in other words I had a feeling I couldn't do it in my 20s maybe I could in my 30s or 40s and it turned out to be the case and I also was starting to get a bit frustrated with the uh, whole um, uh, rhyming verse uh, that I was writing, I suppose, and, and the market for it. Um, and I started to think it would be a great idea to become a more skilled writer and, and maybe be a, 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 a screenwriter or write for TV or the stage. And So I joined the Writers Something Guild. Something that makes money. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, that's right. Absolutely. And, and so I... Um, Joined the Writers Guild, and it just, which is the craft group for, for those people. And it just so happened that um, their annual conference that year was on writing for children. So I, uh, I went to Katoomba um, and Blue Mountains where they were holding this conference. And on the Saturday night, uh, they held a review. And, you could do, and I did some poems. You could do a song or a sketch or tell a joke or whatever. And that was fine. And I came away from this this, uh, this conference thinking I had a great time, but I was getting a lift back to Sydney, and I was putting my stuff in the car. And I thought, well, that's been great, but I'd still, I'm still none the wiser in a sense about where to go next. And as I was putting my bag in the car, this woman raced across the car park, and she'd been at the show the night before. She says, "Listen, what you've got to do, you've got to uh, start sending poems to the New South Wales School Magazine. The editor is Jonathan Shaw. Once you've got six poems published." You can then uh, have a case to take to a publisher for a collection publish. I said, ah, thank you. That's what I needed. 
that was that was the one clue that I needed. I still don't know that to this to this day who that woman was, but I owe her a, a very great debt. And then I started doing that, and I realised that it wasn't quite as easy as that, and the rejection started pouring through. Through, and you have to have a fair bit of sort of grit or bloody mindedness or whatever it is to just sort of hang in there, you know. And then the rejections came with handwritten notes at the bottom, and that was progress, you know. They weren't just the standard notes. And eventually, I started to get um, poems published, and I found that. But then I found that it wasn't so much getting 66 poems published, it was more like 60, you know. And I spent the next sort of two decades, really, um, um, g getting poems published in the New South Wales School magazine. Victoria had some magazines in those days, which they no longer have. And New Zealand had one, which has changed a lot since then. And the New South, New South Wales School magazine has changed a lot since then, too. This was 30 years ago, so, of course, that would be the case. Um, and then I reached a point where... I had enough poems, enough published poems to go in a collection, but I still did not have a publisher, and that was the next kind of major hurdle. And I actually rang the Fellowship of Australian Writers, and I said, look, I know that writers are supposed to research publishers and they're supposed to, but I haven't got much time, and I, I, I'm, I'm a doctor. And I, and I was, you know, to be fair, it was a bit of a cop-out, I suppose, really, but I said, do you know anybody who's really good at this kind of researching publishers? And they gave me the name of a woman called Edel Wignall, who has since become a very close friend, who had had 100 books for children published but was reaching the end of her writing career. And I rang her and we gradually got to know each other and she proved to be enormously successful. And time after time, I'd say, oh, Edel, I'm giving up. I'm just going to self-publish this book. And she said, but you haven't tried very hard yet. And I said, oh, six publishers have knocked me back. And she said, oh, if I had 50 publishers knock me back for this book, you know, you've just started, really. So she kept straightening me up and straightening me up, you know. And eventually we reached a point where there was really only one publisher that, that, uh, that I hadn't approached. And, and, and the, the other thing that Edel said, which is quite interesting, he says most publishers will only for children will only support one poet. And Walker Books was an English publisher that had recently opened uh, an Australian branch and didn't have a poet yet. And she thought, that might be that might be your chance. So I, I sent a uh, whole bunch of poems off to Walker Books. They were all published. And I sent them off, I think it was about May 2009. And I rang them. Uh, normally they say ring after three months, you know. Well, I actually waited nine months because I had nowhere else to send them to other than self-publish. And I said, look, you're going to publish my book, or aren't you? And they said, well, we can't say yes but we can't say no. I said, oh, all right. So another year went by and I rang them again. Same question, same answer. I said, oh. So I waited until three years had gone by and I said, at the end of this month, it'll be three years since I submitted this manuscript. If I haven't heard from you, I'm withdrawing the offer. And I got a phone call. <laughs> and the phone call came uh, on Easter Thursday of 2012, uh, uh, 12 I think and and it was it was the first day of the school holidays I normally I would have gone to work by then but I was school holiday um, but I didn't have to take my daughter to school that's right so I was running like a little bit later had my hands in the dishes and this woman rang up and she said this is uh, Susan Foster here suddenly I realized I had the publisher of Walker Books on the phone you know soap side hands give me a moment sit down dry my hands focus you know and and then she says to me listen we love your poems we love your poems they took all the boxes for kids, but we can't publish it. And I said, why is that? And she said, because it's going to get bad reviews. It's all rhyming verse. Can you do acrostics? Can you do haikus? Can you do limericks? Can you do free verse? Whatever. I thought, uh. 
So at that point, I realized I was not going to get the contract. It didn't matter what I said. So I just sat down and just started blabbing away about Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson and C.J. Dennis and the Bush Poetry Movement and so forth. And she said, oh. she said, hearing you talk, this is going to work. And we're going to market this book as Bush Poetry for Children. So that's what they did. So in 2014, the book was published. And the following year, it won Book of the Year at the Australian Bush Laureate Awards. Jim Haynes at Tamworth Country Music Festival. And I must admit, I was rather chuffed because for a book for, for kids to win a book a prize for adults, or including, you know, adults and children, I thought was, 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 was kind of nice too. So that's the story of the book. There were, there were other steps along the way. We had, we had a, a, a problem at the last minute when the title had to be changed. I had a, a poem that's been published sort of ten times all around the world called Dad Meets the Martians, which is my, by far and away my most popular poem. And the, and the working title of the book was Dad Meets the Martians, Another, another Australian Verse. And then they, the editor said, I, I, I have, I've got some good news. She rang me one day, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. And she started mumbling to herself and she said, how do you say this? I don't know. I'll just come out and say it. Which one first? Good and the good news is Ashton Scholastic wants 400 copies of the book. The bad news is the title has to change. So, and it turned out that Dad Meets the Martians didn't fit this image of bush verse for Australian children. It sounded too cosmopolitan or urban or whatever. <laughs> or Martian, that's right. So anyway, so I, I, I sent her, I sent her, uh, I sent her three emails on, on the Saturday. The Saturday morning, I sent her an absolutely furious email. <laughs> the Sunday morning, I'd modified a bit, and Monday morning, I sent her a conciliatory email. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I wonder which order she's going to read these emails when she gets to work on Monday morning. You know. Anyway, we got over that, and then we had a funny thing too because. There was a delay. The plan was to have this book for Port Ferry in 2014. That was my plan originally, to launch it here. That's right. And then because it, they decided to make it kind of square-shaped or more square-shaped than a regular book, because I'm not quite sure they thought that was more eye-catching or more fitting or something, but they said their Australian publisher, their Australian printer, couldn't handle the shape. So it had to be printed in China, which meant a delay. So she rang me and said, said this. And then she said to me, we'd had all this thing about the title. And I said, ah. Oh. And she said to me, why are you taking this so well? And I said, you know, oh, well, um, obviously nothing can be done about it. There's no real point. I felt with the title thing I might be able to fight it, but there was nothing, to, obviously nothing to do when you're dealing with China, delays in China. So um, finally came out in May 2014, too late for Port Ferry, but we had a great launch at Readings uh, in Hawthorne. And... Uh, yeah, I bought the last 30 copies. There's 30 copies left. The rest are all sold. It won that award, as I said. It was well. The reviews were all positive. We got lots and lots of positive reviews. Uh, it's in over 40 libraries around Australia. I get a, a nice little ELR, PLR payment every year, and uh, just put it down as a as a good thing done. It's has that's the book. The tell the the title is the Billy that died with its boots on, which is the title of a poem, another Australian verse. Yeah, so that's the story, really. Um, and I must confess I've had uh, more poems rejected in the last year than probably any other year before that. I, ha I think I had, I had 18 poems rejected in one day, which was... I, I used to say that I enjoyed rejections because it was always closer to the next acceptance, but I'm starting to lose faith in that theory. <laughs> anyway, I think that's all I want to say. Any questions for Stephen has to go? Yeah. I can sell them to you, but nobody else can. <laughs> 
I've got I've put a, I've put a few over on the desk there, so Joe and Dean can sell them to you if you want to. I've got to go, but uh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Uh, look, I've done a lot of um, workshops in, in schools over the years, so I and that was that was valuable too in terms of knowing what worked and what didn't, and uh, so yeah. Oh, look, I I I tell you what, I had this, I did this um, I did this workshop a couple of years ago in a, in a, in a school in Melbourne, and after I'd done it, this this little boy came up. He was eleven or twelve, and he, he put his hand solemnly put out his his hand and he, to shake my hand. He said he said to me, "You have blessed this class." I thought, wow. Okay, so that was. So it is. It can be very touching. Those moments. Yeah. <laughs> Any more questions for Stephen? He really does have to go, but you can uh, see him around the festival. Yeah, and and the books over there. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll hand you back to. Um, I'll hand the microphone back to you, Jim. Thanks very much. Uh, and Stephen. Agents will not take poets, full stop. It's, it's the old Catch-22. Thanks so much, Stephen. Stephen does have to go. Uh, he has... Uh, his work here is done and he has to move on. Um, okay. Uh, but it, it is the Catch-22 of um, anything, really, songwriting, um, being a professional entertainer, being an author... Nobody wants you until people know you and nobody knows you until, you know, somebody wants you. So um, it, it, there's no answer to that dilemma, uh, really. You just have to uh, keep on until something happens. And it's like everything else in life. I think it's all about connections um, and, you know, being positive and, you know, keeping on and taking taking the blows as 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 they come, because everyone here is going to say that that you know they've had them, and uh, getting started is the is the hardest thing. You know, I've now had twenty nine books published, but um, but my dilemma is I was I was telling this to Stephen as we're driving over. I'm with Alan and Unwin, and I write Australiana, Australia's most unusual stories, Australia's greatest war stories, Australia's, you know, um, racing stories. That's what I do. And when I suggest something different to my publishers, they say, "That's not a Jim Haynes book. That's I'm, you know, that's the problem you have. Uh, the next, the, the next one is the pigeonhole. But you just have to keep, you know." Butting your head against those things and and making contacts. So, um, uh, I, I'm I'm just going to do a couple oh, yeah, of yeah. Thanks, yeah. Stephen. Um, I'm just going to show you what I sort of mean by words and wonder. Uh, and I've got a few here. This is a poem I I uh, co-wrote with someone I used to work with as an entertainer, Greg Champion. Some of you know Greg, and we wrote this one day. I don't know what we were doing, but. Um, it tries to capture, I'm not reading it to you because I think it's wonderful, but we, we were both trying to capture that sense of wonder and looking at things in, a, in another way. It's called There's a Daddy Long Legs at Work Somewhere. It goes like this. There's one just here and one over there, spinning their webs and walking on air. On the go, no time to spare. There's a Daddy Long Legs at Work Somewhere. In the bookcase, by the phone. That's a Daddy Long Legs home. 
dangling blissfully unaware. There's a daddy long legs at work somewhere. In the cupboard where we keep the broom, in the laundry or mum's spare room, or in the space behind the stair, there's a daddy long legs at work somewhere. Upside down and always busy, you reckon that they'd get real dizzy. Don't disturb him, have a care. There's a daddy long legs at work somewhere. So I guess what we were trying to do there was to put that sense of wonder into something ordinary and give kids... I, th I think it's quite sad these days because I'm a grumpy old man and I think that, you know, kids who've got instant access via their telephones to all this sort of information, they miss that sense of wonder and, and reading, the kind of reading that, that, that we probably did as kids. Um, and um, I, I do unashamedly credit uh, poets like Spike Milligan and, and, uh, uh, and, and others and particularly Rudyard Kipling for giving me that sense of wonder. And um, uh, this, is, this is a poem by Kipling. It's called The Way Through the Woods. And when you're writing for kids, I think one thing you need to do is to detach yourself and try and, and create that sense of wonder in your own mind uh, and that sense of things that are beyond their knowing, right? Uh, I've got a couple of little examples and then uh, we've got, uh, we're going to hand over to, uh, to Diane Craig. This is a Kipling poem. I don't know if he wrote it for children. It's called The Way Through the Woods and it appealed to me as a child because it's about history and I've always been fascinated by history and things that happened centuries ago and we know nothing about. That's always been something that I was fascinated by. It's called The Way Through the Woods. They shut the road through the woods 70 years ago. Weather and rain have undone it again and now you would never know there was once a road through the woods before they planted the trees. It is underneath the coppice and heath and the thin anemones. Only the keeper sees, uh, it's the gamekeeper obviously, only the keeper sees where the ring dove broods and the badgers roll at their ease. There was once a road through the woods. Yet, if you enter the woods on a summer evening late, when the night air cools on the trout-ringed pools, where the otter whistles her mate, they fear not men in the woods because they see so few. You will hear the beat of a horse's feet and the swish of a skirt in the dew. Steadily cantering through the misty solitudes as though they perfectly knew the old lost road through the woods. But there is no road through the woods. That poem I remember on first reading filling me with this sense of, I don't know what it was, dread and awe and wonder at, um, at things that might be there that we don't know. Um, and very similar. I found lots of examples of these poems when I started putting this anthology together. Uh, now, this is a very old poem. It's by Edna St Vincent Millay, who was a poet, the, the, you know, two centuries ago. And it's called The Little Ghost. 
And, and it gives me the same sort of feeling. I knew her for a little ghost that in my garden walked. The wall is high, higher than most, and the green gate is locked. And yet I did not think of that till after she was gone. I knew her by the broad white hat, all ruffled she had on. But the deer ruffles round her feet by her small hands that hung in their lace mitts, austere and sweet, her gown's white folds among. I watched to see if she would stay, what she would do, and oh, she looked as if she liked the way I let my garden grow. She bent above my favourite mint with conscious garden grace and smiled and smiled. There was no hint of sadness in her face. She held her gown on either side to let her slippers show. And up the walk she went with pride, the way great ladies go. And where the wall is built in new and is of ivy bare, she paused, then opened and passed through a gate that once was there. So... To me, I mean, I could read you lots more and I'd love to, but <laughs> um, it's that sense of wonder, of awe. And I think if we write only about, I, I, um, in, and lots of children's books I know when you're reading them to very small children, they need to be about real things. They need to be about cows and houses and, and all sorts of things like that. Um, but to me, it's important that we, when we write for kids, we think about words and I know Di has got a, a lot more, knows a lot more about me than this because she writes for kids and she knows what words work and what words editors don't want you to use. But I think uh, all sorts of made-up words and perhaps big words that... I used to love the sound of words, just particular words. I didn't know what they meant. I just loved the sound of words. And, and the, that other thing is, is wonder, you know, that, oh, stuff that might be there that we don't yet know about as children. And they're the things that have stayed with me. And I told this little story. I wanted to put Colin Teeley's poetry in this book and I had to ring his widow who had the copyright and she was a bit uppity. And I, she said, hello. And I said, Mrs Teeley, it's Jim Haynes, I'm doing this thing. And, and, and what do you want? And I said, well, I'd like to put some of your, you know, late husband's. Well, what sort of a book is it? She said, what, sort of, what, a, what is it? And uh, I could tell she was, you know, not that happy to be talking to me. And I said, well, it's, it's, it's about, it's called a book for Aussie kids. It's got lots of Australian poems in it, but it's also got some that aren't Australian that we learned at school. And she said, well, what sort of poems are you talking about? And I said, well, for example, The Highwayman. And she said, the moon was a ribbon of moonlight over the purple moor. And she, and that's the only reason that Colin Tilly's poems got in there because she and I loved that same poem and we recited it together over the phone. And then I said, what do you think about it? And she said, oh, yes, of course, you can have them. It's okay. So uh, there you are. A little sense of wonder and we got Colin Tilly's poetry. So any any questions on that at all? Or uh, Because I'm going to hand over to these two wonderful people now. who, And I want Craig to talk about how he gets that sense of wonder into his illustrations because I know he does because I've seen them. So um, I'll I, w I wanted to talk about having uh, lunch with uh, 
Colin Shearley and oh. his wife. Oh, really? And, uh, <laughs> yes. and, and uh, a couple, yes, on the sun, Sunday lunch. Oh, okay. <laughs> was, she no, a, was, was she a little uppity? It was very formal. Yes, that's the sense I got. But uh, I'm glad the highwayman got me over the line. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, I'll now hand over to uh, to Craig Smith and and uh, die. So I thought I'd go through how I got to have some books published, um, and I have a handout, so these people writing can just have a little break, um, because there's lots of links. Thank you, Peggy. Lots of links that I wanted to share with you that really helped me. And you're talking about finding people in the know. I found people in the know by going to conferences and taking short courses and networking, joining associations, going to their meeting and you just find people all the time that are willing to help you. Because the writing community, uh, the children's writing community is just wonderful. They, um, they're willing to help anybody. If you just go around and say, oh, I'd like to write a book one day, you know, you're accepted. And then when you do write a book one day, they really congratulate you and they're, you know, they're, they're in awe. So that's, that's a good thing to have. Um, so I started writing when I was 58 and it was because I had grandkids and I uh, loved the picture books again. Uh, I used to love them when I was a kid. Well, we didn't have many when I was a kid, but when I was teaching. I loved them and then I'd forgotten all about them until the grandkids come along. So I thought, oh, I'd really like to write one of these one day, just a goal I had. And so I went and did some short courses. Uh, lots of places you can do those online or, um, uh, or um, yeah, uh, just you find them. They just, you know, Google and you'll find short courses everywhere. So I've got some things like um, the... Uh, each, each state has a writing centre and writers, Victoria ACT Writers Centre and they run lots of courses and that's where I started. I also did um, an online um, university uh, semester as well, just on picture books. Just, and we had an online classroom and that was fun. Um, so then I joined Kidlit Organisations and Clubs and networked with authors, publishers. And one lady I met um, at a course I did, she ended up being my mentor through all my writing career for nine years of it. So that was really handy. And now she's become an agent. So I'm thinking, mm, that might be handy too. <clears throat> um, I wrote lots of stories and I thought they were wonderful. Um, but they weren't. <laughs> but my mentor picked out the positive things in it which kept me going. Um, and then I started having the stories professionally edited, which really, really helps. You know, everyone gets it done. And, uh, yeah, it's one way to learn personally. So you've got this story and to see that story being transformed into something that's publishable is a real learning experience. Um, then you have to search websites 
for publishers that are open to unsolicited submissions, which is pretty tricky. And some who are closed um, most of the year do open like for three weeks or something a year. So it's pretty tricky. But things like I've got a copy uh, there of Buzzwords and Pass It On. They're online newsletters that actually let you know when those publishers are open uh, to submissions. So that's really handy too. Um, and you have to find uh, publishers that publish your sort of books because they have a specific marketing um, angles and, and you have to fit in with that. Um, I eventually found I really want to write environmental books now and I had these environmental books that I was that were true stories but they were story, they were narrative and I sent them out and people, you know, I got a lot of rejections. This is, I brought them along, four pages of Excel sheet <laughs> rejections and amongst there there's five acceptances so you just got to keep going, you know. Just um, yeah, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought now. Um, so uh, yeah, so you've got to check um, uh, what sort of uh, books. Uh, also, uh, if you go to a bookshop and you've got a particular sort of book that you write, go and have a look at other books that are like that and see who publishes them. Yeah, so I had these books that were. Um, sort of narrative non-fiction and I was sending them off to publishers and then they were saying no but then I sent one to Museum Victoria and they said oh that's exactly what we want and then I sent another one to the CSIRO and they said oh that's exactly what we want you know and everyone else said oh no it's too factual for us you know it was they just wanted fiction so keep a list of who you send it to and what you send and when you send it so that you've got, you, you know, you, you think, oh, I can remember that, but when you get to, you know, a couple of hundred, you can't. So, And people don't like you sending the same thing again and again, so that helps. Um, and keep writing and editing and sending out stories regardless of rejections. As Stephen said, you know, you're going to get them. And I met authors that are prolific, you know, and they've had so many rejections. One guy said, you know, I've had 400 rejections. So, you know, it was pretty amazing. Um, so I just thought, there's a couple of kids there. I just thought I'd do, um, show them something. Now I've got these books published. I occasionally get asked to go and present them. And also we have to launch the book as well. So I have a very talented daughter who I can give her a photo of a shearwater and she can create this for me as a puppet. So could I have two volunteers, two small volunteers? Yeah, you can come up. Thank you. 
So I just thought I'd go quickly through the books that I've got and how they got there. Uh, I kept sending out all these um, submissions and then I started getting personalised letters back. And I thought, ah, okay. So take note of that because if you get something that's not the general thing, it means that, okay, you're getting somewhere. Anyway, this was the first one that I got. Uh, And then eventually I got this email that said, we love your story, is it still available? And that was after they'd had it for about 18 months, I think. <laughs> so, you know, I'd given up on it. So this one was about um, a sheep with ADHD and was based on my granddaughter who was diagnosed ADHD and I wanted to write a story for her um, that, and that would help kids at school and teachers and parents about it. Um, And then I kept thinking, oh, we did lots of research to cope with her behaviour. And then uh, this this thing kept popping up, a a sheep with five years' worth of wool on it. And, you know, oh, you know, it's escaped shearing. And I thought, that sheep probably has got ADHD. It doesn't like noise. It doesn't want to be touched, you know. So I put the two stories together. So... Someone said to me the other day, oh, where do you get a little preppy, where do you get your ideas for the story? And I said, well, the stories are there. I just have to find them and I, I tell them in my own words. Um, I'm doing the environmental stories now, so that's easy. But this one was the same thing. There was a story about the sheep, the story about my granddaughter, and I put them together. They were there, I just had to tell them in my own words and and put them together. Um, And this one, that was a... I just want to show you the sheep, how it ends up, where is it? Oh, oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And, you know, true story. Uh, That was Wombat Books in Brisbane. Mm. So they do things, they focus on... um, uh, kids, uh, pe- things that keep people being different, kids being different, and how they can be accepted, you know. So that's their angle. Um, this one, my daughter was working with this lady. She's mid 20s, non verbal, autistic, and she does the most incredible drawings. And um, <coughs> she had, they said, Oh, we'd love to do, we'd love to get Amy to illustrate a book, a children's book. And they said to Karen, you don't know anyone who writes kids' stories, do you? (laughs) And she said, well, actually, you know, my mum's just started. So um, I got the job. And we self-published this one because it was a special project with Amy. And what her mentor would do um, would be say, okay, Amy, we need a wattle bird, and she'd show her a photo of a wattle bird or a crow, and that's what would come out. Uh, there's a little wattle bird there. So that was pretty amazing. Um, and then baby band. I used to do. I used to be classroom music teacher, and I went to one workshop, and they said, well, write about something you know, and I thought, well. I know about music. So, and they said, well, write about 
let's give you an idea. Um, a baby and noise. They're two words, baby, noise. And so I thought, oh, okay, there's, there's a lot of noise in an apartment block because this baby's crying and then the, the apartment next door sort of um, taps on to something and, and sort of it, it follows on. So I devised funny sounds that all together make up a rhythm pattern and that um, stops the baby crying in the end until the window cleaner decides he might bang the bass drum that the baby's are sleeping. So <laughs> we had to have a bit of a catch at the end. And then <coughs> came... And this, sorry. Oh, go on. This is act outable. I mean, guys, grandkids, you know, act this out. So mm. um, yeah, it was accepted possible. by the School of the Air um, for their online kindy program. Baby band, and new. Yes, yeah, they're in libraries. Um, new New Frontier, for that one. Uh, Australia and the UK. Yeah. Um, so I've got a paperback version of that, which Joe's got, um, and that's published in the UK. <coughs> Then came this one that was the story of the dog saving the penguin colony in Warrnambool and I was just fascinated by that story and um, I found the story on the toilet block in Warrnambool written up on a board and I found the story the same time as the film director found the story and he went off and made a movie called Oddball. <laughs> yeah, it was men and Amazing. ladies. <laughs> and and Craig ended up drawing it. <laughs> you didn't know it was that no, toilet block. That toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he went off and made a movie and I went off and wrote a picture book. But then I wasn't allowed to call my dog Oddball, even though that was dog's name because of the movie. And it was a bit of a fuss at the end. It was like, oh, no, you know, I'd told them all along and I, did they want to be involved and could we, you know, co-promote and everything. We talked and talked and talked and then at the end it was like, oh, there's this great big fight because we wanted to put Oddball in it. Then anyway, we, we uh, Swampy and I had a coffee and we decided on another name. And he's really happy because Max was really the naughty dog. That was Oddball's son. But the film director liked the name Oddball better. So Max got his day in my <laughs> book. So I was really pleased with that. Anyway, the museum said, who do you want to, to illustrate? And I said, don't know. And they, they Googled and they said, what about this guy? I said, yeah, that looks good. <laughs> it was Craig Smith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, because, you know, it's because we wanted humour in the book, yeah. So, um, yeah, he just, well, sorry, did the most wonderful job. Anyway, then, um, yeah, I was just, in, oh, and we, we, we got the CBCA, um, we got two notables, actually, in the 2017, and then we won the uh, Environmental Award uh, Picture Book of the Year for the Wilderness Society. So he did really well. And then I said to Craig, well, actually, I've got another story. Uh, could you have a look at it? And he said, yeah. And anyway, he said he loved the story. And so we went, then I went to the CSRO and I said, um, 
his story and they said, yeah, we like that. And I said, well, Craig's happy to illustrate. And they said, oh, great. Okay. So we did that. And then uh, we've got another one on the way, went back to the museum with another story and they just said, oh, do you want Craig to illustrate? I said, yes, please. <laughs> so so we're kind of a team now. Aren't we? Well, I'd like to call us a team. And last night you saw the bird. He saw the birds for the first time. Yes, yeah, sort of, sort of. I've been down there to try and see uh, the shearwater returning or taking off in the morning a few times. I've never seen any until last night. Mm. The power of making stuff up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I told him, you know, that, that w there would be birds there. So, you know, this, this is, uh, that's my favourite, but there's, it was really hard to choose a favourite. Battle of Britain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe um, if if Craig has a, a go, and then you could ask. Um, or questions any questions or for Di right now? Yeah. No, I don't really have any pictures in my mind. I just have words, <laughs> and then w when you do that, you don't. Um, you always send your manuscript off and then it's the illustrator's um, artistic licence to interpret that anyway. Um, and it's odd that, um, you know, Craig and I actually work together, like the <laughs> publisher at the museum said the other day, oh, just talk amongst yourselves, you know, which is really unusual for that to happen. But... I think it's because I was saying to Craig yesterday, it's because it's narrative non-fiction. So, you know, the things have to be, the illustrations have to be correct to a certain extent. Mm. Mm. Go on. They don't have the power of the... No. No one does. No. No, they have New South distributors who the CSIRO have as well. Um, and, uh, I mean, we've sold six, 7,000 copies of Chooks and they printed four and a half of these and they're almost all gone and that's since October. But would so you describe it generally as, like, niche publishing from the museum, from the CSIRO? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I will, yeah then, uh, it is. Yeah. yeah, but they're trying to sort of get out into the general public. You know, we still get really good ELR, PLR, because like this one was accepted on the Australian Standing Orders list and the Scholastic Teachers list as well. So that means that um, lots of libraries and school libraries just say, we'll have whatever you think the best of for the month is and it's a standing order. And so this will be good for ELR, PLR, because it's in lots of libraries. And I have kids come up at market stalls, oh, I've got that, you know, in my library. Um, yeah. I noticed there was a certain
I guess um, it really helped me having young children. I, I was very involved in their care and so I talked to them a lot and, you know, they were talking to me and I sort of got their perspective of things and also reading lots and lots of picture books. And it kind of just sort of permeates, sort of, well, to me it sort of just came naturally. And, <laughs> you know, this is the most talking I've done ever really because usually um, I'd prefer to sit and listen. So, you know, I don't talk a lot myself and I like to use as few words as I can to say something and that sort of suits this. And I guess finding um, finding a paradigm, finding a you know like the sheep that, that sort of fit the the big picture. Mm. Yeah. So that was interesting because my granddaughter has really fulfilled the the story herself because Annabelle starts off really annoying to to all the other sheep and they don't like her, um, but in the end they work out hey that those characteristics that make her really annoying actually got her ahead in life and got her lots of um, you know advantages and and good treatment and so my granddaughter she used to drive her mother crazy because she sang all the time now if she was living with me I wouldn't have worried but drove her mother mad and then uh, last year she's 15 she won the lead role in the Matthew Flinders School production singing and acting and her face is like on this this big poster all over the school you know <laughs> it's like it's amazing it's like, yes Alex and she loves it she loves the book she realizes it for her it's for her and um, yeah it's good okay so we have about <coughs> half an hour left This is a bit that I'm interested in because yeah, I yeah. can't draw a stick man. <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by what. Yeah, so I would like to do a drawing at the moment, but uh, actually I would like to just whether you're speaking about the uh, commencement of uh, our long careers, um, we of our generation were lucky to uh, well actually no I'm going to just give you what I know of you myself. My career commenced in the late 70s. Uh, it was a time when there, were, there was a, a certain amount of cultural change happening in this country. And for those of you who recall, uh, the Australia Council, for instance, had come in, I think, under the Liberal government in Ray Gordon. But in the, uh, around the, the 70s, you'd all remember, Oh, you'd all remember uh, we had Gough Whitlam, uh, a Prime Minister who was interested in culture. He was a champion of uh, literature, of all manifestations of, of culture. He was interested in Australian stories. This, that sort of, and of course there were so many other changes that were happening in our nation uh, uh, to do with uh, Aboriginal advancement, land rights, uh, female women's rights. There was a lot that was being challenged and changed at that time. Uh, in publishing terms, 
that was the commencement of basically 30 years of rapid growth uh, from uh, that period that in my experience went all the way through to the early 2000s before it has plateaued. But we, those of us who were, there were a lot of us who were able to ride that, uh, that growth. Now, there was reference before to ELR and PLR. I'm, I'm not, do you all know what that is? It's phenomenal. It's a fantastic program instituted in 1975, I think, in 1974, modelled on a European idea that uh, authors, illustrators, uh, owners of copyright were able to be compensated for the use of their books in libraries. Uh, now, what it, the effect of that is that we all get paid a certain amount of money, a dribble of money. But if you keep at this job and you build your list, if you have the PLR or the ELR, for one book it's not much. For two books, yeah, a bit better. For ten books, it's getting all right. And then occasionally you'll have a, a Paul Jennings book or something or other that sells extraordinarily well. And that will earn you even more. And bingo, you're in the middle class. It's a fantastic, quiet program uh, of cultural support that not a lot of people know about. Uh, but it, it underpins uh, the incomes of a lot of people, thousands of people now. And so what's the word mean? Educational lending right, ELR. The, the long one, the one that is more long been with us longest is public library support, PLR, public lending right. John Howard ex extended the program to educational lending right and funded it generously. And of all the support that was given, uh, a lot of support that was given to uh, publishing uh, has fallen away, but this particular program has been maintained. We, anyway, uh, it's uh, we were this country was lucky to have this this interest in telling its own stories. Uh, interestingly, the the ballads and rhymes that we were also talking about, a lot of them were from the nineteen hundreds, eighteen hundreds. But it it uh, it had another life in this new rebirth of Australian literature in the 70s. It was seen as uh, one uh, relatively safe way of publishing. I uh, remember doing a whole lot of work for William Collins, the forerunner of HarperCollins, which is basically uh, illustrating uh, uh, you know, some of these poems. It was just fantastic. But then comes an appetite for more complex storytelling and more different and not just the, the doggerel and the ballads, but that's extended. So we've got this group of uh, stories by Percy Tresize and Dick Rufsey. Do you know these books? The uh, Set in Cape York, the Aboriginal experience of uh, the Quinkins and whatever. They are fantastic books. Uh, check them out. <laughs>
<laughs> you know, it's just great Australian storytelling done effectively 40 years ago uh, and uh, deserved to be on everybody's bookshelf. That sort of thing, there was this appetite for, for, for books about this country, this, the amazingness of our own country rather than relying on US and UK uh, books. Um, yeah. Just briefly, I just wanted to uh, say the, as Di in particular, because it's a little bit closer to it, the, you do have to understand the industry in a sense. You have to, you do have to try and back, do that background checking of who is publishing what. The publishing programs for all sorts of people, all sorts of publishers are constantly shifting and what might have a go of being published now may not under in five years' time or under different editors and the different... Mm. So it's, you've it's just got to constantly check in and a good way of doing that, I can't think of a better way, is through bookshops like this. Um, chatting with Joe, you know, what is working, what isn't working, what is selling. But there's also, as you have described, uh, as we were just saying, saying, you do have to understand who you are writing for. And if you're writing for young ones, you know, talking to young ones, reading stories to young ones, working out where stories just become so unclear, where you have to, oh, this is, if the words say this, the pictures say this, but it doesn't quite gel, it doesn't quite make sense, that will become perfectly clear if you are reading that to a six-year-old. And you should be guided by that mm. a little and bit. And with a picture book too, um, you're always taught that you have to leave room for the pictures. So the illustrations tell um, a large part of the story as well. So I wouldn't say that so-and-so had um, a blue jumper on, you know, because if it was significant, you know, I maybe could make a note about it, but it will be up to the illustrator then. Is this a black and white book? <laughs> <laughs> right, just checking. A dark yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah, they have it on the website, what they want. But, yeah, but everybody says 12 points. Uh, serif font like uh, Times New Roman or something like that. Double space, but I usually do 1.5. Um, and they, yeah, it's a certain way that you write if you've got dialogue, you've sort of indented a bit and things like that. So, oh, no, you don't page it. No, no. Yes, that's, that's actually the first job of the illustrator. Funnily enough, in, in, in my experience anyway, mm. invariably you're invited to uh, paginate. That is, get the scissors and cut it up and just stick it on the on the page with a bit of sticky tape that you can lift off and change mm. it around. Yeah. It's, very, it's a quite, yeah. quite creative. Uh, it's quite thrilling, really, to start the project that way. Yeah. yeah. As a guide, though, um, to see if your story has enough in it or not enough as far as illustration goes. 
you work on 14 double spreads. So you've got to have sort of info that's kind of got the one idea on each spread or maybe two. Um, so 14 and then you've got sort of the end the, the end page as well sometimes if you need it. Yeah. Yeah, well, 32. Yeah, 32. yeah. but mm. think of it in terms of spreads, not just page by page. Yeah, double, sp double spreads. Yeah, page 2, 3, page 4, 5. Yeah, so that's 14. Because you've got um, information front and back too. So you've only got 14 actually that pages basically that are illustrated. Mm. Yeah. And it's always fun when you've only got say one word or or one little sentence on a on a spread. It's very generous and, and one wonderful. Yes, and unless mm. it describes something or other which is dull. <laughs> <laughs> Best to be dramatic. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would there be any? Mm. Um, yes. I hope not. <laughs> not <laughs> well, yes, I get to look at them. <laughs> um, and yes, I get to correct anything that might not quite be right um, because non-fiction things do have to be right and I might have some inside information that I haven't given across to Craig. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I get to look at it and usually I just say, oh, they're beautifully wonderful. There's <laughs> a couple of things I picked up on um, and Craig's happy to adjust that. But then the publisher also has her say and then the designer also has their say. And yes, at this point it's very much a team. Mm. And it is genuinely really interesting. So in my case you pass, pass it over to a graphic designer and how a designer who can just shift the type around and maybe emphasize certain things uh, it it's it's very very satisfying uh, in bringing in these different mm. points of view uh, even though you know, I'm quite competent at doing doing that but somebody else will bring fresh eyes to it and will just be able to lift mm. everything when it works, it's really nice. Yeah, it's one of the best things in my life, apart from my children and my grandchildren, I think, um, is to see my words just come to life in the illustrations and then into a book like that first book that you get in your hands. Or every book, every book is just wonderful, you know. Yes, we're... Sorry, we're doing a... Uh, my partner and I were, were doing a thing last year uh, Northern Territory, 14 emerging authors. But as part of this project, they had written the story, then they had contributed some artwork, then they, they a, a graphic designer was commissioned to take their words and place it on a, on a page in, with their artwork. And when, the, when they saw this rough, Designed page of their uh, of their words and artwork. People were just dissolving into tears of, of joy. You know, it was like it wasn't quite a book, 
but it had the veracity, yeah. the yeah. the reality. You could mm. see it in this other dimension. It was extraordinarily moving and a reminder of how important it is. Mm. You know, people having telling their story and just seeing it with this authority of, of something bigger than a word document. It was great. Um, yeah, that was a, that was a prolific author who'd sent out the four hundred submissions. Yep. Um, oh yeah, possibly. I've sent a few to America because um, I've done conferences and met agents and things who were sort of interested and whatever. So I've, I've sent them out, but they just write differently to us. Their, their books are different. You know, there's some really brilliant books, but I find. I don't know where I think we're a lot more real with our books, and I'm surprised. Like I just love Bluey, <laughs> the show Bluey, and it's been uh, Disney have bought Bluey, and I'm looking at the shorts saying, I don't know how American kids are going to cope with this. You know, like they did that that thing that we did. I haven't heard since I was at school. But Mum, open the lid, Mum. Put your finger in. Mum, move your finger around. Mum, close the lid. Thank you for cleaning my toilet. You know, that's like in America, a kid's going to get that. (laughs) But anyway, you know, I just think it's very different. Um, Yeah. Yeah, well, the writing took, I can say, for Wingcatcher seven years because I wrote the story and I thought it was wonderful and then they said, no, you can't have a bird that talks and you can't you can't assume that the bird thinks this way. So I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote until finally someone said, oh, yeah, that's a beautiful story, we'll take it. So, you know, it depends. You know, I can write a story a lot quicker now that's a lot more decent. Um so it doesn't take as long. But then the illustration, Craig? The illustration by itself is not, even for saying this, it doesn't take that long, but you do have to do it over a certain amount of time. So you can have it on the wall and make sure the continuity of all the, of the book as, as it is developing... Um, uh, that all the continuity issues are taken care of. Uh, so the actual work it would only take four weeks, uh, but you'd be unwise to do it in four weeks. You'd, you'd need at least double that time or longer to just ref- be able to reflect on what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exciting working fast, but it's uh, but things go wrong, and you 
In fact, I can see an example on the exhibition outside, the black and white drawings for the, which are for a film clip for, of the Lonely Goth, this beautiful song by uh, McThomas. But it's got some really rubbish drawing in it. And they had to be done so fast. Oh. And I look at, and I haven't seen them for, you may not believe this, but I, those drawings were done about 22 years ago and I haven't seen them until a couple of weeks ago. Oh. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it was never published as a book. But you just look at them and think, cripes. <laughs> and, and you may not know, but that exhibition is Craig's work. Um, oh, yes. The exhibition that he's putting all the rubbish yeah. on is actually his own work. Yes, yes. Sorry, I should have made that nice and clear. <laughs> yes, it's self-reflection. It, 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 it is very genre-specific. And Maya, who's down the back, is launching her... Um, what is it, a rural romance novel uh, at 1.45 at the Pavilion. So come along because uh, she's going to speak about that and it's a wonderful book. Um, and, and she's writing in that genre. Um, what I do, as I've already said to you, is I'm, I'm locked in to being... And it's interesting we're saying, you know, look at what the publishers are doing and try and, you know, do something similar... It's the opposite for me. I don't. I'm not in the. I don't understand this children's stuff. These two people do, um, because I'm Alan and Unwin's Australiana guy, and they don't really want another one, you know. Bill Swampy Marsh is ABC's Australiana guy. I used to be, you know, but I'm now with Alan and Unwin. So, be aware. Uh, you know, uh, this isn't about children's literature. Um, this is about if you're writing generally. Don't go to, you know, it's sort of the opposite in a sense, you know. If, if you were sending Australiana stories uh, and true stories but written up the way I write about history and remarkable stories and amazing lives and, you know, stories with beginnings and endings that are true, um, then if you send them to Alan and Unwin, they're going to say, no, Jim Haynes does that. You know, so, you know, just be aware of, of the, the differences between genres and the differences between what publishers might, you know, and please don't send them to Alan and Unwin because they might be better than mine and you might end up with my job. Uh, but, um, you know, that, that's how it works for me. But we're not talking about adult writing here, which is what Maya and I do. It, we're talking about this wonderful children's thing. But I just want to ask Craig... Uh, you know, we, we're talking about genres and I write the, the uh, history, Australiana history, wrapped up as wonderful stories, hopefully, but true. I mean, my publishers... I did a book called Austra Great Australian Drinking Stories two years ago and I put in some short stories which I thought illustrated the history of, of alcohol in, our, in Australia, which is really what the book was about. I wanted to call it the, the alcoholic history of Australia. But, but my publishers call my books great... You know, great Australian racing stories. Oh, no, I used to be great on Best Now. When I was with ABC and HarperCollins, they were all great. Great racing stories, great this. And then I went to Alan and Unwin and the head of Alan and Unwin, this is the story, uh, went and spoke to the head of Amazon and said, what's the best-selling word on a book cover? And he said, best. So uh, the, the boss of Alan and Unwin came back and suddenly I wasn't great anymore, I was best. So... Um, I used to be great, now I'm best. Um, and, you know, but that's, that's my thing. And, and 
So um, is your market though into into schools? I mean, obviously, a, the great drinking stories would not go down well. No, in school. I, I don't write for kids really at all. I mean, okay, I, I, I do write poetry <laughs> for kids occasionally, and because. Well, to be honest, to be brutally frank, when I was doing this book, it's got some of Stephen's poetry in it, and I needed a balance between copyright and non-copyright for the for for the right. book. Yeah. And so, you know, every time I put a copyright poem in, I had to put in four right. that weren't copyright. Sure. So I either had to find, you know, something from the past, Should or write, or write the. Should you make it clear why that is so? Should you make it clear why that is so? Yeah, I guess it's about the. Uh, the marketing, uh, uh, the cost of it, you know. It. Yeah, they've got to pay for it. So, uh, a book. I'm given a, a percentage, you know, and, and I don't know what it was for this book, but say it was twenty percent. I could only have twenty percent of the book of the um, stories, poems in here that were in copyright, because um, they were only going to pay a certain amount in of copyright. That's permission. right. To, to the, uh, so, um, but I don't have to, you know. My poems don't count. So any any poems of my own which I thought were good enough, I could put them in here um, because that didn't count for the twenty percent that had to be paid. Because I get paid for the whole book, I get paid for this, and then is this making any sense? Uh, so I could only have twenty percent of people who had to be paid, and I'm not one of them. So quite a few yeah. of the poems that I wrote, and I tried to write very good ones, and the. Uh, Daddy Longlegs and there's my dinosaur can cross the street. He's very careful with his feet. And, I, you know, I think my poems are okay. I don't think they're great. But I needed to put stuff in here that they didn't have to pay copyright on and that is old poems that are out of copyright or stuff I write. So I, I write for on demand. I, I write what I'm expected to write for Alan and Unwin, one book a year, used to be two. Um, and we sit down and we talk and they say, got any ideas? And I'll say, yeah, I'd love to do a big book of war stories and they say, that sounds good and, uh, and we do it. Yeah. You know? The beauty and of getting one book published is that you can then go to that editor direct. You don't have to go to the slush pile anymore. And so I've been lucky. I've got four different publishers so I can go to either one of those publishers, just a direct email, say, here's a story, do you like it? And they generally get back to me within a few weeks. So that's the beauty of just getting that one book published. And uh, what I've got a question for Craig, and it is, you know, Maya's writing in a genre of um, rural romance fiction, and I'm writing what I write, and, uh, and Di's writing... Now, for children and uh, other people might be writing all sorts of things for, for different markets, but it all goes to you. And do you, you know, how do, how do you deal with a different... Or do you have a favourite or...? Oh, well, that's a bit of a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would assume that it's uh, well, ch children's I, stuff. I don't know. Well, it uh, here in... Uh, in this area, of course, um, you got Paul Jennings down the way. It's always nice working with Paul because <laughs> uh, um, that because uh, that Paul obviously sells a lot of copies, and so that's it's good business. Uh, there are there there is one guy. Do you know Doug McLeod? Oh, um, yeah, he's, um, does anyone know Doug? Yes, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, so he, he, uh, he and I share a brain. Although, well, here I go, I've got to, just to illustrate that, he has encephalitis. So I, I did not say we quite share a brain at the moment because he's disease. But he has a comic brain that, um, that I, I always enjoy doing his, um, doing his texts. He has a wonderful comic sense, or he has in the past. Um, yeah, there are, there are. Um, actually, one thing I have noticed that some, you'd think that you'd, you'd need to like the text. Mm. And in fact, you don't. <laughs> uh, in, you can even to text that you may not like at all, uh, but it still might. It might have certain values or certain things that you think are not good, uh, or might be clumsily written or whatever. It's still going to be very good fun to draw, and the outcome might be terrific. It's an oddity, perversity. So when you read um, the manuscript, do you like you instantly see the pictures if you're going to draw it or if you can't see the pictures, you won't? Generally, if you, all you need to do is see a good portion of it in pictures and then you can make the rest just join up. Oh, but okay. if you can get a sense that uh, at least um, uh, a sizable minority of it, it will... Uh, give you plenty of opportunity to be either dramatic or silly on a grand scale, uh, then you mm. can just link everything uh, mm. together. Yeah. Um, so, what is the stage of Nothing uh, comes to mind, though there's plenty of books that I have no idea whatsoever what the author actually thinks of, about them. <laughs> Mem Fox mm. comes to mind. Oh, John yeah. Marsden comes to mind, where the picture books I've done with those yeah. two, which aren't bad, actually, but uh, I, I have no idea what the... Uh, so we've connected yes, we've... We're, yeah, no, uh, no, I've known Mem, Mem for a, a long time uh, through being in Adelaide, John less so. Uh, so I, I figured that they didn't like like it, but I don't know. Uh, well, I, I just don't know. I don't know. The relationship, the primary relationship you have is with your editor. And that is, uh, you know, as long as that's healthy, everything's cool. But I, w I w because both of those two that I just mentioned, I, I really like the books, but I figure that somehow it may not have hit the mark for them. Uh, now, the only other reflection I'll make on that is I'm not sure if it's important uh, in some ways, because in the same way as working with, say, Paul Jennings, we had a little ceremony, say, five years ago with, when we did the last book. Uh, the ceremony was passing over the text and he said, it's over to you, it's now your book. Uh, uh, now, Paul 
is a friend. Mem and Don are. They're like acquaintances. If we, we pretend to be friends if they come in the room, <laughs> in a sense. Uh, but essentially, I, I figure that uh, they would say, no, essentially, the book is theirs, the, through the text, and I see it as more the book is ours. Uh, so make of that what you will. Well, not uh, not yeah, always. Um, well, no, because I don't have chances. Not for anything. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't like the cover for Annabelle, and because uh, I preferred the original one that the um, illustrator did, but the publisher didn't like that. And, and then she came up with that other idea, and oh, you know, I don't really like that. But they said, too bad. Yeah, well, they said, you know, well, I didn't think it was going to sell well because the drawings were too small and it was on the shelf in the distance. You wouldn't know what it was. Um, but anyway, the publisher just made that call and said, no, that's what we're doing. Mm. Mm. Well, we have, we have five minutes left and I was going to get um, uh, um, Mick Coventry to come and do a... Have you got a one-minute poem for kids, <laughs> Mick? <laughs> And Maya, come up too, um, because these are these people are part of the writers' program. Um, Mick's basically um, a performer of, of verse, but he he has uh, written verse for kids. Maya uh, is going to do her launch. I just want you to see her, um, and uh, she'll be launching her her book, and we'll be talking about that down at the pavilion at um, at one forty five. So, have you got a a, a thirty second? Oh, Craig's here at one thirty. Yes. Yep. Uh, okay. Uh, and and of course that is Craig's exhibition out there. No matter what he may think of it, it's <laughs> it is it is his. So, uh, Mick, we have exactly three and a half minutes left. So, uh, give us a give us a little burst. Mix it. Mick is obviously a bush poet. Part of our um, morning show, the the Aussie morning show, and uh, he hasn't written for kids, although you have written books, haven't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, just give us a burst of yeah, something I'll, that you would find kids would react to and be entertained by in your world. Right. Um, my granddaughter, when she was six, came to me one day and asked me to write her a poem. So I asked her what to write about. And she said, an Australian animal. And I immediately panicked, thinking she's going to say an echidna or a platypus or a 
something that's hard to rhyme with. And she chose a bunyip. Now, that sounds like it might be difficult, but I thought it was reasonably easy because no one knows what one looks like, so you can make the bunyip out to be whatever you want him to be. So this is what we came up with. People say bunyips are imaginary. They just live in a storybook. But really, bunyips do exist if you know where and when to look. The bunyips all come from a special place called the magical land of Boo. And they only come out once a year because that's what bunyips do. On the 67th of September, at exactly 28 o'clock, Barney the bashful bunyip climbed on top of a great big rock. He cast his eye over Boggy Swamp and the magical land of Boo, where all the bunyips lived in peace, because that's what bunyips do. Now Barney searched inside his tucker bag for his favourite food to eat chocolate and garlic soup and a turnip pudding garnished with silver bit. And he washed it down with a horseradish smoothie and a pinch of artichoke stew. Bunyips always eat food like that because that's what bunyips do. So Barney hopped down off the great big rock and went down beside the swamp and he took from his pocket his harmonica and he played the famous bunyip stomp. He played and played for hours and hours. He simply blew and blew. Bunyips always play their harmonicas because that's what bunyips do. So Barney put away his harmonica and stowed away his tucker bag. He gave a bunyip belch and burp and picked up his trusty swag. And he walked towards the boggy swamp with dream time in his view. Bunyips always sleep in boggy swamps because that's what bunyips do. So if you wish to see a bunyip, remember the time and place. Be very, very quiet, or the bunyip might not show his face. But if you hear harmonica from the swamp in the land of Boo, it is certain to be a bunyip because that's what bunyips do. Thank you. <laughs> now, Craig could illustrate that in 10 minutes on the. Um, but uh, yeah, repetition was another thing I forgot about. But. Uh, Anyway, thanks to, to all of you for coming. It would have been very lonely if you hadn't. And uh, thanks, of course, to Blarney for doing this and being part of the festival and, uh, and for keeping this wonderful bookshop open because, as Craig said, there aren't that many bookshops anymore. But you know what? The ones that are left are really the good ones. And uh, people say, is, is your book available? Everyone say, it's in all the good bookshops. And it's not in the bad ones because they've all closed down. So it's in all the good bookshops. Would you thank Craig, Di, uh, Mick, Stephen, and uh, and I'm sure if you have any questions, we we'll be here for a, for a, a, f a few minutes afterwards. Anyway.
and the handouts. And my book launch of the war book is tomorrow at the pavilion. I've forgotten the time. Um, and uh, and Windcatcher launch is at five o'clock tonight. And Maya's launch of her book is uh, at one forty-five in the pavilion, which is the headquarters really of uh, uh, for the festival for all the spoken word and, and for the writers. So would you thank all our people? Thank you. And thank you for coming. <laughs>